Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Studs Terkel. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with my people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in. While I appreciate that we're all swimming in content these days, if you like Studs, it would mean the world to me if you could tell a pal or two about it. Maybe recommend an episode that would speak to that person. Twist their arm a little bit? Well, you won't have to do any arm twisting for this episode. Because today we're featuring a conversation with Johnny Spath, a.k.a. DJ Johnny Shiitake. Johnny's been a DJ at strip clubs in Portland for over 15 years. That's right. Strip club DJ. Now, part of the ambition of studs is to learn about professions that are completely foreign to me. And not to feign piousness or whatever, but strip clubs are foreign to me. Not to virtue signal or to get all high and mighty. But before my discussion with Johnny, I wasn't even sure that this thing was going to air. What a fool I was. What a fool I am. This discussion with Johnny is a total barn burner. Without glorifying the strip club scene, Johnny talks about what makes the Portland strip club scene unique. And maybe kind of glorious. He also discusses how dynamics of race and gender play out in that scene. But most thrilling to me, he talks about how he sees his role in the community, a community committed to catharsis. So put your seatbelts on, kids. DJ Johnny Shiitake's in the house. He's going to make it rain. Johnny Spath, you're a fountain of creativity, a clever dude with varied and sundry interests. You're brimming with personality, teeming with soul. And for the past 15 years, you've been a DJ at a strip club in Portland, Oregon. How did you land a gig at Sassy's? I got to know. How did, how did it all get started? When I had, uh, first moved out to Portland, I, uh, you know, I met, met up with some kids, um, some guys, and started a rock band. You know, we, we, we hung out in the Portland nightlife quite a bit and strip clubs just kind of went hand in hand with, you know, being a rocker in Portland at that time. Um, so long story short, ended up dating a dancer for a while um, who worked at Sassy's and, you know, I would, I would frequent Sassy's quite a bit um, up to that point. I lived a few blocks away from it. It's kind of a, even then it was kind of a, a notorious club. Um, but she ended up getting a hold of me one night and it was a Friday night. They had no DJ and I needed a job at that point, a more, you know, sustainable job than just, you know, gigging around and playing music. So basically uh, my guitar player, uh, John Guffey, you know, loaded me in his van, gave me a bunch of CDs he had lying around in a CD case in the van, you know, took me there. Basically, you know, I had never done any sort of DJing in, in that capacity. Um, you know, I will say this, it is a very different thing than, than what people generally consider DJing as. Um, and I'll get into that a, a little later. Um, but I was basically just kind of thrown into the lion's den. Um, I literally had a, a flashlight underneath my chin, you know, trying to figure out where everything was in the uh, DJ booth, including where all the levels were, the, the different channels. Basically, all they had at that point was in this tiny little podium um, was a Sony five disc CD changer. And a 
cheap DVD player that you were supposed to run, you know, CDs out of and jump from one channel to the next. And I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Um, it was kind of terrifying and it was kind of funny at that point too. I was very used to playing in front of a lot of people. And that was probably the most nervous I think I'd ever been in my life, you know, standing in front of a, a, a big, large group of people. You know, I didn't even know, like, just, you know, small things like how long do you play a song for? Do you edit a song? You know, I didn't want the dancers to be upset with me either because I, you know, obviously didn't know what I was doing. And I do remember very clearly playing Panama by Van Halen. And I, I edited it um, towards the end, towards Eddie's solo. And I literally got booed. <laughs> like up to that point <laughs> in my life, I had never been booed on stage, you know, or off stage for that matter. And uh, it was horrifying, but I, I stuck with it. And, you know, like the next day, um, the manager at the time, you know, got a hold of me and he was like, you know, do you want, do you want to take over Tuesday nights for a while? We like what you did, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, like the girls like you. And the manager at the time um, knew me from playing shows too. And uh, I just kind of went from there. But yeah, it, it was horrifying. Um, I just, you know, was kind of thrown into it and nobody trained me. Um, nobody, you know, really even like, you know, the bar staff at the time too, like nobody really knew how to do any of that stuff or even like where, you know, like the volume levels were. So I kind of had to figure it out on, on, uh, on my own. And, uh, it was crazy, very, very stressful moment, but I'm, you know, I stuck with it. You, you did. And you stuck with it for, I, I assume much longer than you had imagined sticking with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was definitely, uh, this wasn't supposed to be a career. <laughs> it just kind of, uh, I just kind of fell into that, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, you don't really think about things like that, especially at the time, you know, I was, I think I was 27 or 28. I'm 43 now. And, you know, I couldn't imagine at that point in my life, in my late twenties, thinking that I would still be, you know, tied into that industry at all. Like I, you know, I just thought it was just something to do for a while to get to get money to eat and to pay rent, you know? Now, you had said that you had vis-a-vis um, -vis the rock star lifestyle of Portland in the early aughts. You <laughs> gutter rock style. Yeah. Gutter yeah. rock of Portland in the early aughts. You had yes. some experiences in these strip clubs. Now, I, I should, in full disclosure, tell you that I've been to uh, two strip clubs in my life, both uh, out of a sense of obligation to a bachelor. I was just, I was going to say that bachelor party. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm familiar. So I'm like, I'm a real idiot when it comes to these things. And so you will, you're going right. to be fielding questions from a bona fide idiot uh, for the, for the remainder <laughs> of our discussion, although you probably knew that already. Um, <laughs> but you had had some experiences at strip clubs just as part of the gutter rock life of the early aughts in Portland. And there's something about this Portland scene right. that makes it unique. Can you walk me through what this scene kind of feels like or what it felt like then maybe versus what it feels like now? Right. Um, it is definitely different now. It has, it has changed over the years. Um, but, you know, just to like clarify from, from where I came from too, I mean, you know, before I'd moved to Portland, I think I had probably been to a strip club maybe twice in my life too. And they were more of like, you know, what they would call the uh, gentleman's club. So when I moved to Portland, actually, my bandmates had taken me to Sassy's uh, midday, you know, like right around lunch or something to kind of, uh, what, you know, what they would say, like pop my cherry in the Portland strip club scene. Because before that, I hadn't actually even gone to 
uh, strip clubs at all. Um, and this was kind of like early on in our band. And, you know, it's, it's, there, there's definitely a huge stigma attached to going to strip clubs. And I still kind of felt that too. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm comfortable, like just, you know, like we just eat lunch in a strip club and they're like, yeah, no, it's awesome. Trust us. You know, you can get a steak and get a baked potato and, you know, and there's beautiful full nudity, full alcohol, which is also kind of an odd thing. Um, in a lot of States, that's not really kosher. Normally if they have like a full, full bar, um, it's, you know, it's just, you know, topless. If even that sometimes just pasties, but Portland's kind of, kind of like the wild West, you know, there's, there's, you know, technical legalized gambling too. I was definitely not aware of like what that scene was initially either. So can you be so kind as to tell me what it felt like to pop your cherry at the <laughs> at Sassy's in 2004? I don't know. It, it was odd. I mean, it definitely took me a minute to kind of, you know, like relax and just like, you know, and, and at the time Sassy's, like I was saying earlier, you know, it was, a, it was a total dive bar at that point. Um, I mean, they had like, like collapsible tables and foldable chairs um, to sit in, you know, around like these, these two stages. And, you know, like the ceiling was like that, like kind of like basement styrofoam ceiling. You could still smoke inside at that point, you know, so everything was kind of, there was like that smell and everything was kind of stained yellow. They had a big trough in the, in the guy's bathroom to piss in, which they kind of actually got like notorious for, you know, it's kind of like one of those, those legendary old Portland things. But uh, it, it was, it was weird. Um, I think I had a, a couple shots to kind of, you know, take like the, the nerves off too. You know, just being like aware of like your surroundings and, and etiquette and all that. I didn't know, you know, like what you were supposed to do, you know, like how you're supposed to tip and like, are you supposed to sit at the stage or, you you know, like how much do you tip? Because, you know, I did kind of feel awkward just like sitting there eating a steak, staring at a, at a naked <laughs> dancer. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was definitely weird. But, you know, I got, I got used to it pretty quick. And, you know, like dancers, a lot of times wouldn't even wear heels, you know, it was just like, you know, then they, they would just hang out. It wasn't, there was no, you know, division between customers and dancers. We were all just kind of hanging out together, which I thought was cool. That was definitely something that I'd never seen before. And I thought it was actually, it was a great business model. You know, I remember like early on thinking that, you know, I would love to take this idea and take it to another city. I realized shortly thereafter that that probably wasn't going to pan out in any other cities because Portland is kind of unique in that sense anyway. It sounds comparatively democratic and it sounds much yeah. more accessible. Yeah. And I think that's a really important thing. It's, you know, I mean, I think at this point, if you talk to some of the dancers, some, especially some like more old school dancers, I think that kind of is its own double-edged sword too, because, you know, like at Sassy's, you know, specifically, Sometimes people would just come in just to hang out, you know, and like they wouldn't throw money at the dancers and that, you know, can be an issue. Um, and that's definitely kind of frowned upon. If you're there, you know, at least show some respect. I mean, if you're just sitting at the bar, get up every once in a while and throw some money down, um, you know, like those dancers don't make hourly wages and, you know, they're, they're performers and they're amazing at what they do. They deserve that. So there is kind of an issue with it being so relaxed too, because they're, you know, it does kind of, you know, cultivate like a really relaxed atmosphere of maybe just like hanging out at like your, your local neighborhood bar and not an actual strip club. Yeah. It seems like people are more so than my limited strip club experience. It seems like people are kind of hanging out more. It also seems like men and women alike are customers. Yeah. I was actually, yeah, I was definitely going to bring that up too, which is also a very odd thing for me because, you know, stereotypically speaking, when you think of strip clubs, 
you know, it's bachelor parties, it's guys, it's, you know, you know, kind of like gross older guys sitting in the back, you know, it's like the worst expression of toxic masculinity. Exactly. Right. It is. Um, but in Portland, um, I think it's probably even maybe like nationwide or, or internationally at this point, I think it's a lot more accepted. It's not really on the fringes anymore. Um, and you know, women like sitting at the stage too. Um, that I thought was cool. You know, um, that's that definitely at the time was a very unique Portland, unique thing. So if I'm here and you're right, what you're saying is it's at least among like a substantial segment of the Portland population, perfectly within the Overton window, within like the realm of normal discourse to talk about how you went for a steak and a perhaps a whiskey for lunch or for a, a, an early dinner at one of the many strip clubs that dot the Portland landscape to, to bring this up in so-called polite company would not be nearly as stigmatized as it would be in most other parts of the country in the early aughts. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely something, you know, that I had to get used to too. Um, again, it's a very Portland thing. And you say, you know, like they're, you know, one of the many clubs that, that dots the Portland landscape for sure. There's per capita, there's more strip clubs here than anywhere else in the country. I think it, Atlanta is the only other city that runs a close second and, and Las Vegas for real. Um, and I, I did Google it, you know, this was maybe, you know, three years ago, I had been told that, you know, for years and years and years, we just kind of like accepted that as being a fact. And I'm like, you know what? I don't know. But I'm like, Atlanta definitely has a lot of strip clubs. Las Vegas definitely has a lot of strip clubs. But I, I 100%, I promise you, I did Google it. And per capita, Portland's got more. I, I can't tell you. You don't have to, Johnny, because I just yeah. hit the interwebs and learned that there are yeah. 54, <laughs> 54 <laughs> strip clubs in the city of Portland. And Portland's a small city, you know, keep that in mind. too. Yeah. So it really is I, an inherent part of, would you even say an inherent part of mainstream culture in Portland or is that going too far? No, it absolutely, absolutely is. Really? And that being said, I can also tell you that at this point too, as far as, you know, the dancers, you know, like you have young women, you know, early twenties for the most part. Uh, working as a dancer, it's not, you know, like what people would imagine, I think, you know, and still part of like the stigma of strip clubs is that, you know, like these women are doing this out of, out of desperation um, or, you know, they just, they, they can't function in normal society or they can't, you know, or they didn't go to school. They don't have an education. And I can very adamantly say now that that's absolutely not the case. You know, most of the dancers that I work with have some sort of formal education. They choose to do it. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Now, I can't really, I don't want to speak for any of them, but, you know, being in the industry as long as I have, you know, my fiance is a former dancer. I've dated a lot of dancers and I've been really good friends with, you know, like my, my closest friends to this, to this day in this town are dancers, you know, both currently and former dancers. It can be an actual career move, you know, for, for a, a, a younger woman in Portland specifically, you can make really good money doing it, you know, as much as I would say like a, like a lawyer or a doctor starting out, some of these dancers in some of these clubs make serious money and it's not out of, out of desperation. They enjoy doing it. It is performance. They enjoy performing. They enjoy, you know, being on stage and, and expressing themselves in that sense. That's one of the things that, you know, that people continuously, 
have misconceptions about is, you know, what these dancers are doing and why they're doing it. It's definitely not out of, out of desperation. And I think especially now, you know, these girls are like career minded, like they make their money, they save their money and then they go on and do something else. But in the meantime, you know, like they really enjoy doing it. I don't think it should be looked or frowned upon in, you know, sort of like an anti-feminist thing. Like they're somehow, you know, doing this against their will or doing this out of, you know, out of desperation. So do you see your role in a way as empowering them to do that? Um, well, as the, as a DJ, I mean, music is empowering, you know, you are, it is, yeah. you, you are a creative artist, you are a musician, you know, separate and distinct from this role as a DJ uh, at a strip club, you know, you and I share a fervent belief in the power of music. Right. Yeah. What is your role at the club? The way I do it specifically is I, you know, I, I do absolutely believe in the power of music. I know what it can do to people. Um, and from my experience doing this, I've seen how you can sway, you know, an entire crowd of people one way or another. And specifically at Sassy's, what I liked was the fact that it was a stage club. And what I mean by that is unlike a lot of other clubs, including in Portland, it's not what we would call a hustle club, meaning dancers aren't trying to get private dances constantly from, from customers they're making their money on stage. And that was, from my aspect, that was by design. I wanted it to be a performance club. And I think with, with my own head and how it was raised, I was raised by very, very strong women. And I never wanted to work in a club that was, you know, kind of skeezy. And they do exist. I'm not going to name any names. I always, you know, I, I wanted to keep it more, you know, PG-13 R-rated as opposed to like X-rated. Because to me, it was still a show. And it was a lot more, you know, inviting to like, you know, people that weren't on the fringe. I think my role there, um, you know, I've called myself like the man behind the curtains. I'm there to, to help accentuate what they do as, as performers, as physical performers. And, you know, when I first started, you know, with my, I don't know, late twenties arrogance and, you know, and, and, and pride and self-righteousness, you know, I thought that my, my own particular taste in music too was going to rule. And I'd always kind of, you know, fantasize if I was ever a strip club DJ, you know, this is the kind of music I would play in a strip club. And eventually I got to be that guy. I kind of wrote the book as I went along, just kind of, you know, trial and error, seeing what, what, what worked. Initially, when I was playing music there, my, my main goal, I know some people might get upset by this, but, but my main goal was to pretty much get rid of new metal completely. As in, you know, like that particular, particular genre of music you know, umlaut over the U metal music. Um, I, I hated it then. I still hate it now. Um, and that was kind of rampant in the early 2000s. So, you know, I started with that. I started playing more, you know, like 70s glam rock, straight up what I would consider more stereotypical strip club music, meaning like, you know, I brought in Motley Crue, like early Motley Crue. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. For my own interest, I just simply need to know what were the, the bands that you wanted to hear no more of and what were a couple of bands that you really needed to hear in the mix? I can tell you the music that I wanted to play. I wanted to play T-Rex. You know, I wanted to play a lot of like that 70s glam, um, you know, Sweet, Slade. You know, I started playing what I would call more like legitimate metal up to and including, you know, like Slayer even. Um, more moderate tempoed Slayer songs like South of Heaven or something. I try to steer clear of, I try to steer clear of like Rain and Blood because it's, it's <laughs> that kind of <laughs> machine gun tempo isn't exactly great for moving to. And I, I, and I also told, you know, a lot of dancers in that, in that time too, 
you know, I try to explain to them because that's another thing too, like how, you know, what my relationship is with those dancers, you know, and, and I will say this, it is a very difficult thing. I don't think people really think about this, including my, my therapist at one point, and I was talking to her about this. I, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable saying that too, um, that, you know, it's, it's incredibly intimidating for a guy to walk into a dressing room full of really beautiful nude women and, you know, kind of, you know, keep focus, maintain respect and to get something creative formulated. It was very difficult. And it's still, you know, to this day, I still kind of, you know, get a little bit of butterflies, just like pop my head in um, just because, you know, it's one, it's kind of taboo, you know, and you don't want to be disrespectful and you don't want to, you don't want to seem like a weirdo or, you know, a sleaze or, you know. You describe the Portland strip club scene as being comparatively democratic and you discuss the, uh, process between the DJ and the strippers as rather collaborative. It sounds like there's a process by which you and the dancer come to terms with like together. Right. When it, when it's working well, that's, it, it should be like that. Now, again, you know, when I was, when I was younger, when I was first starting off, I still kind of had a, that bravado and I would, you know, someone probably say I had a chip in my shoulder. And, you know, kind of like a know-it-all with, with music. And, you know, I would explain to these dancers, like, look, you just, you got to trust me on this. This beat is 4-4 four, four time. Um, you know, it's very easy to dance to. I'm not going to throw you guys some weird loop. You know, it's not going to be some weird, you know, odd time signature or something. You can literally just, like, stamp your foot to it, four on the floor, you know. Um, but I would also say this, this music is cool. <laughs> you just got to trust me on this. Yeah. People will respond to it and they will like it. And I'd like to say now that I was right. Um, and I was, I think initially, you know, I, I wouldn't change how I did that back then. I will say I was probably, you know, maybe more like my way or the highway with the music at that time. And the more I, I, I learned to become better at my job, the more I, I opened up with the dancers and what they wanted as much as what I wanted. And we, and we started instead of like, kind of like fighting for one, one style of music or another, we sort of like went down the middle and figured out something that would work completely. And ultimately what it, what it came down to is how do we get people freaking out? How do we, how do we get people to make it rain? How do we get people out of their seats and, you know, and make this a party and, that definitely took some, some time for me to like really figure it out. Ultimately what I, what I came to was what I still to this day, what I would call like my power sets and Sassy's is a, is a, is a three song stage set club, meaning, you know, the dancers that are on stage dance to three songs and then you switch to a different rotation of dancers. But like I was saying, there, there's a few instances that I remember specifically thinking, Holy shit, this worked, you know, at Sassy's, I think like, when it really started kind of like, like picking up steam and started getting really notorious uh, was when uh, this dancer, I, I will say her name. I know she'd be totally cool with me doing it. Um, Malice, who is still active in the industry. She now lives down in, in Los Angeles. Uh, we're still very good friends. But when she started working at Sassy's, that's kind of when a lot of things clicked together. Like she had a very, very, very clear vision of what she wanted to do on stage and how she wanted to perform. And she would do like literal performance stage sets where she would wear costumes and have, you know, like thematic music, which I was already kind of doing before her, you know, I would play songs that all sort of had, you know, like they were genre specific, they were era specific. Um, and sometimes even, even an actual theme, like for example, I would play 
um, you know, number of the beast by, by Iron Maiden. Um, or I would start with like shout the devil by Motley Crue, including the, in the beginning mantra that goes before that song. Cause I thought, yeah. it, I thought it added more, you know, kind of theatrics. Yes. Um, in, into, uh, running with the devil Van Halen into number of the beast, you know, to close it off. And it was, you know, that was kind of what I was doing already when I met Malice and what she was doing, it was, you know, just kind of pushed all of that creativity to a totally different level. And, you know, we became very good friends and, you know, mutually had a lot of respect for each other. I will say this, if, you know, and I know there are dancers that were, that, that were around during that era, including my fiance that, you know, knew that there were times that we would, we would, we would fight like cats and dogs over music and, you know, what would work. And it was, you know, it was, it was competition. It was healthy competition. You know, I'm just the man behind the curtain. I have to basically, you know, like go through another dancer to try to get my creative process acknowledged, you know? Um, and, you know, she would make jokes about like, I, I remember specifically there was, she was playing uh, uh, Smooth Up In You by the Bullet Boys. I know it sounds like all I do is play cock rock there. I, I assure you that's not true, especially at this point. But in that era, it's kind of what we were doing. Fucking hate that song. And I'm like, you know, people, it's not that recognizable of a song. Like there's a better way to do this set. And she was like, nope, I'm going to do it. I'll show you. And I was like, okay, fine. So she, I, I, I played it. And what I didn't know was she had like literally went right when she ran out on stage had gone up to like each and every person sitting at the rack. The rack is what we call the seats right in the front of the stage. Um, and she like told them all to like specifically make a response for that song. So once that song started playing, everyone freaked out and it was like, what <laughs> bullshit? There's no way. And she was laughing, you know, and I was like, okay, all right, you got me. All That's right. cool. Yeah. Well um, played. I just got, yeah, well played. I got schooled. Okay. Um, but anyway, what I was going to say, a very specific moment that I remember about what I would play and, you know, and, and how it was kind of like a big turn of how I, you know, would, would communicate with the, the dancers uh, in a much more positive way. Uh, there was this dancer, I'm probably not, I'm not going to say her name. She, no, I'm, she's retired from dancing. She actually does live in LA now too. Um, she's amazing. Um, but she, did, I, I remember specifically, it was probably like a Friday or Saturday night. So we were, we were pretty packed. Sassy's also is probably one of the most notorious clubs in Portland. Um, not to float our own boat or my own boat specifically, but you know, we did win, you know, best club in Portland in the Willamette week, which is like the local, one of the local rags out here that does like the best of Portland every year. And we, you know, up until COVID really, um, or until this last year, we won year after year after year. Hey, that's awesome, man. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And what's funny about that is none of us cared. <laughs> it just, you know, it was one of those things like, yeah, okay, whatever. Anyway, there was this one specific night that I remember um, this dancer wanted me to play Don't Stop Believing by, by Journey. My eyes could not have rolled farther back in my head. <laughs> I was like, you gotta be. I'm like, come on, dude. She's like, please, Johnny, can you just, just try it out? Just play me that. I'm like, well, what else do you want to dance with it? I'm like, I don't even know what I would play. She's like, I don't care. Play whatever you want. I just want, I want to dance for that song as my first song. And I was like, okay, fine. I'll do it. I love that girl. She's very sweet. She's awesome. So was, you know, I do whatever she wanted after a little bit of a fight. Anyway, so the opening riffs, the, the opening piano riffs on Don't Stop Believing. Once I played that, I kid you not, the entire club just lit up. I mean, people freaked out. Huh. I like literally saw, you know, like clouds of money getting thrown up on stage. She looked at me with that, like, see, you know, and I was like, okay. Yeah. So at that point I was like, I'm going to fucking roll with this. I don't care. You know, what are like 
you know, other songs that, you know, like ballady kind of like early mid eighties cock rocky songs that have like that, that like a piano opening that are big that everyone knows. I'm like, okay. Aerosmith. No, <laughs> no. I went white snake. Here I go again. Right. Which also starts off really kind of quiet. Um, you know, it's got like that opening, like synth riff, some piano stuff, David Coverdale doing his, you know, I don't know. I don't know. And people, again, like the second that chorus hits in that song, people freaked out to the point where I actually killed the music during the chorus and the entire club was singing, which I, I have never seen in a strip club up to that point. I'd never seen that. Everyone was, everyone, everyone was freaking out. The final song to wrap it up, I did Bon Jovi living on a prayer. Mm-hmm. By the time Bon Jovi does that, whoa, whoa, I mean, everybody, the entire place was just freaking out. And I was like almost in tears, you know, I was laughing. I also, you know, I, I was, it was just one of those moments where everything just kind of like stood still for a second and, you know, all the stars aligned. It was the coolest thing that I had seen up to that point, especially in a strip club, like, holy shit. So that was definitely, that was definitely a moment where I learned how to make what I call power sets. And that was one of them that I'd, I'd used for years until people burned out on, on the whole journey thing. Yeah, I know that there are other people that would probably disagree with me. I'm certainly not the first strip club DJ, even in this town, to ever play Don't Stop Believing. <laughs> but I think <laughs> I'm not, which is weird <laughs> to think about that. Why would so many people want to dance to that? Um, and the, the answer is because it, it works. It actually does work. Or it worked at the time. I found out as of maybe even like four, four years ago, it no longer works. Can I, can I ask a very pointed question about that? So yeah, give me a... a- Give me a date around when you discovered this first power set. That was probably maybe 2006. Okay, so 2006, that music was Long gone. not in vogue at all. It was not at all. And the types of people who you're describing to me would frequent a club like Sassy's, they would not for a moment concede to listening to, let alone liking, let alone loving. Right these songs but in this particular context it blew the fucking roof off it did How? it totally did How? i don't know it, i i don't know and i so i think the crowd was a little bit more mixed at that point it wasn't like you know guys with like slayer tattooed on their stomach it was you know a mix of like your you know everybody's i guess i i, I don't want to offend anybody by how i would describe what they look like but you know what i'm talking about just your average show person yeah i i don't know why it resonated so much i think like at that point you know this is this is pre-portlandia this is you know before portland was kind of put on the map as being like this quirky you know irony filled city i think maybe it was you know kind of because it was so stupid because it was so like out of left field that why would you play this in a strip club and you know, nostalgia definitely, you know, always rules with, with music too. I mean, that's a very, very strong motivator to get people to freak out. I don't, I don't know, but it worked. And, and in time I had to learn how to keep up with the times, I guess. But yeah, so over the years I did, you know, develop, you know, a way of like, you know, like, like the newer crop of dancers, like what are they really into? And, you know, it slowly became like, like nineties hip hop. Um, so I started making, you know, power sets out of like, you know, great nineties hip hop. Cause that's what became cool. And all of a sudden people were freaking out, you know, when you play like notorious VIG or, you know, ice cube or something, you know, for me too, it's like even, play, you know, playing like, like late eighties NWA at times work, you know? So like we started going into like, an, it, it, things got less rock and more hip hop. It was a massive mix of, you know, like EDM, um, hip hop. There's still some smattering of, of rock and roll. I definitely don't play cock rock at all anymore. 
Because again, I think like the crowd's gotten younger and they didn't grow up with that stuff and they don't care about that stuff and it doesn't resonate with them. It doesn't have that that nostalgia. So you you brought up Ice Cube and NWA. Uh, and so you kind of w- walked into an area that I wasn't planning to ask about, but I am nevertheless desperately interested in. What is the racial and ethnic makeup of the dancers and the clientele? Is it pretty diverse? Does it represent the diversity of Portland? Sassy is that Portland is, I mean, it's easily the whitest city I've ever lived in and it's, it's notoriously white. So that being said, you know, I moved to Portland from New York and which obviously is, you know, probably the most racially diverse community on the planet. And I moved to a very, very, very white city, much smaller. And I do remember thinking like the only black person I had seen here, like that when I first came in was, and I kid you not, was, was Danny Glover in the airport, in the Portland airport. And I was, you know, I remember asking my girlfriend at the time, like, where, where are all the black people? Um, this is a very odd thing. I'm not, I wasn't used to that. Why are all the black people here? Danny Glover. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that was weird. Um, as far as Sassy's goes specifically, I know that they definitely made efforts to, to be as inclusive as they possibly could be. Um, Did they succeed? I think so. It's, got, it's gotten better. Before shutdown happened, we were definitely probably the most diverse of the top tier club. What about the audience? The audience, man. Uh, see, this is another, like, this is kind of a moment of contention with me in the city of Portland was I would say, you know, several of my, my, my friends, my, you know, fellow coworkers, dancers, uh, that were women of color, um, they experienced some serious upfront racism. And that's like, that's not a joke. It does exist here. Um, if you know anything about the history of Portland, it's definitely, it's, it's a thing. And it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's buried deep in the city's foundation, whether or not people want to, you know, talk about it or bring it up. It's obviously lately, I'm sure you've seen all the, you know, like the, the, uh, the, the protests, and the, the BLM march is going on in Portland. I know it's made international news. As liberal as its city fronts itself to be, there is definitely a huge underlying issue of racism, for sure. I mean, I, I can tell you instances of, you know, what dancers would say to me about what customers said to them, said to their face. Uh, this guy, one of the dancers, um, she was on third stage, so it's really far away from the, from the DJ booth, so I can't really hear anybody anyway. But this guy had a watermelon Jolly Rancher. If you can see where I'm going with this. He was like, oh, I'm sure this is your favorite flavor, right? I mean, what do you even say to that? Like, I couldn't, I was like, my jaw dropped. I'm like, are you kidding? Are you fucking kidding me? Where is he? I want to know where this guy is, you know? And it it, it 100% exists. Now, people can, you know, club owners, whoever can be in denial of the fact that this is a thing that exists, but it 100% does. And it's horrible. You know, there, there is definitely... Uh, an undercurrent of racism in the city, whether or not Portlanders want to face it. I think it's starting to happen. I think people are starting to recognize that now. Um, but it's, it's there and it's, it has definitely been a point of contention with me and, and customers, some customers over the years. Um, cause you know, sometimes I, I'm not really known for keeping my mouth shut. <laughs> I'm definitely not known for, uh, for, <laughs> for, for chilling out, you know? Um, so, which is fortunate that we had, you know, some fantastic bouncers that I worked with for years too, because they definitely, had, <laughs> <laughs> they definitely had to put up a wall sometimes between me and, and people. 
and dancers too for for that not not me and the dancers but dancers towards customers because you know uh, tensions can can run pretty pretty hot in an a environment like that especially when you you bring alcohol into the mix and like i said portland has you know it's full nudity full bar that definitely can lead to some you know hardcore things you operate in this hypersexualized environment right yeah amidst a fair amount of racial tension you have uh free flowing alcohol and the whole goal is to make it lit right make it rain get people all amped up right when it's going well everyone is at the very least a little bit out of control yeah but the environment needs to be under control right so how do you work johnny how do you work in that environment <laughs> i don't know <laughs> I, I don't know how i've done this for 15 years i mean i definitely you know i'm i'm i've gone gray at this point i uh i think you know me and, and former dancers have made jokes about how we all kind of suffer from a form of ptsd um just from dealing with that kind of you know just constant barrage of you know go 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 uh money was 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 very good and it's hard to you know think about doing something else when you know i would justify me staying there um and the stressfulness of it by you know telling myself well it's literally it's only 24 hours a week that's the entire amount of time that i have to spend in this club it's literally one full day that's it all the other time is mine what i didn't bank on was the fact that my time outside of that club was kind of consumed by that club you know for example like if if you know if if there was an incident that had happened the night before like with customers or something man that like that resonates with people and and it you know to get over that you know being hurt like you know people have to understand like i you know i'm not drinking in there at all and these people who you know conveniently can come in there be completely rowdy completely out of control say the most rotten fucked up things they can possibly think of and then wake up the next day with a massive hangover and complete amnesia is you know it's kind of unfair too because it's like you know mm. like there are some you know people not only to dancers but people have said some terrible things to me too and and it it definitely hurts and it sticks you know substance abuse in that industry obviously runs rampant um just as much as it does in the rock and roll scene you know there was no separation between you know like the rock kids and all the dancers um you know as far as our our drug habits i mean it was straight up there was a lot of cocaine a lot of drinking and you know that's what we would do to keep ourselves amped now granted the first year or so i was still allowed to drink on duty i'm also the reason why no dj's can drink anymore at sassy's i will say that i'm not going to say why i'm not going to go into that story but um that being said um i i also you know i i am a perfectionist and i do want to put on the best show i possibly can mainly and actually specifically because of my own ego I want to see people freak out. I want to get that from them. And the only way that I can still elicit that, especially at this point I'm getting older and it's hard for me to keep up with just music too, you know, I don't give a shit about what's popular anymore. So I just kind of like take it now. I'm like, okay, whatever you guys want to play, I'm cool with, which is kind of a total reversal of what I used to be like, you know, I was a notorious, you know, taskmaster and it's got to be like this and this is the music that we're going to do. Just trust me, it'll get the crowd going crazy. You know, I think a lot of us you know fell into like some pretty serious drug problems and drinking problems because of that because of 
the stress of it. And, you know, considering that, like, you know, like these girls are going up on stage naked. I mean, they're like literally that they have nothing. They have no uh, protection, no, you know, barrier between, you know, their, their physical bodies and the outside world. It's right there. It's all there. It's totally exposed. Um, you know, even like taking downers to like, kind of like, you know, chill out after a night, you know, I mean, we would, we would all hang out till, you know, the wee hours of the dawn, uh, you know, all the clubs close here at two 30, but you know, all of us would, would be hanging out with each other till at least four in the morning just to decompress from putting on those shows constantly. And it does wear on you. I want to ask you about that. Not only are you a veteran of the scene and of the club, you're also, you know, you're a father and you're a, a wise and clever person. And you see some of the talent that comes in there. And, you know, I imagine, you know, the DJ's getting older, but uh, the dancers stay about the same age. Yes, it's the Matthew McConaughey line. Yes, from, from Days and Confused, for sure. <laughs> I'm afraid it's true. It is. No, it, it 100% is. Do you feel that part of your work is to try to provide some leadership and guidance to some of the women that come in and they have abuse issues, they have eating issues, they have right. other anxiety and control related issues. Right. Do you, do you traffic in that at all? Or is that just simply not part of your work? Um, I, I think as I got older, definitely. And I don't, you know, I don't want to, for fear of coming off with, you know, with an air of toxic ma masculinity too, it's definitely not, you know, like a father figure thing, or even like, like an older brother thing, it might be more like an older brother thing. You know, it's definitely like, I, I have an amazing amount of respect for these dancers and what they do and what they put their bodies through too. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, incredibly taxing physical work too. But, you know, I, I think the older I got and knowing, you know, seeing like a lot of dancers throughout their entire career, seeing when they first started, seeing like the in-between and seeing them leave and seeing, you know, what they graduate onto. Most of these dancers are millennial and now Gen Z, you know, and it's like I it's harder for me to like relate to them on like on a social level at all anymore. But there's always music and that I still, you know, there's always that that kind of like binds us and working in that industry does, too. But what I would always tell these dancers, anybody who asked me, um, you know, the most important thing, I think, while you're still doing doing it, while you're still in that industry is, you know, a definitely take pride in what you do. Fuck these people who, you know, think that you're like kind of pushed into this or you're like a lost soul or, you know, you have daddy issues or something. Fuck them. That's bullshit. Have pride in what you do um, and put on a fucking show. That's, you know, from my aspect, put on a show, make it happen. Give them something to freak out about. Because to me, it's always been about the stage show. I'm a stage performer. That's what I'm in love with. That's what I've always been in love with. That's what Sassy's kind of gave me the catalyst to be the man behind the curtains, to be able to be, you know, to still perform without actually performing. And, and that's always been very important to me. I don't care what fucking genre of music it is. I don't care what era. I don't care. Just light it up, you know, put on a show and take pride in what you do and take pride in what you dance to. Once you walk out those doors, leave this behind, have a different life, have a different kind of social life outside of this. Don't make this your entire image. Cause I've seen that happen. I know what it does to dancers and you can eat them up. And once it's not there anymore, what do you do? You know? And I will say that like, there's an amazing amount of egos that goes on that you have to have. 
with dancers, with staff, with DJs, you know, and, and you obviously you have to have a sense of self and a strong ego to be able to kind of weather a lot of that. But, you know, my number one thing, please, when you, when you walk out of this club, leave it, leave it behind, you know, spend your money wisely, save your money because this ain't going to last forever. Also, despite me ever telling that to anybody, they'll still do it. You know, it's very easy to get caught up in that. Well, it's also very easy to say, right? And yeah, uh, of course, right, right, know, and that much harder to execute. And I think you know that, which is why you really try to impress that upon them. You seem to have done that. You've taken your own advice. You're a father, and you know you, you're a loving partner, and you're a tattoo artist, and so you have, aside from those twenty-four hours of work, to which you seem to commit yourself wholeheartedly, you have other paths that bring you joy. And so that makes me happy to hear, I should say. Thank you, Dan. And it's cool that you share that with some of your colleagues, you know, which I imagine you share that with them, not just in that paternalistic or fraternal way, but just as like a friend. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way that friends advise each other. Right. You know, you're such a splendid storyteller and you shared so many stories and it is a hallmark of my fledgling podcast here to ask my guests for the story of one professional triumph and one professional failure. I have to say, I'm, I totally adore uh, your story of the uh, journey to Whitesnake to Bon Jovi power set. <laughs> but is there in your, you know, decade and a half plus as a strip club DJ, is there a story of profound failure? And then if you would, perhaps another story of success that you'd be willing to share? It's more of like, kind of like an all-encompassing thing. And it's like, it's that, that specter of, you know, feeling defeated, letting what people say to you affect you. And I think for many years, I kind of failed in the fact that I did let it get to me and it did hurt. And you know, I did, I did lose sleep over it. I had a hard time of taking my own advice of just leaving it all behind too. Once you walk out those doors, cause it's hard to, and people can be very cruel. And especially when, you know, you're out there, I think what's kind of, you know, maybe people don't understand too, as far as being a DJ, you know, I'm performing the entire time too. I mean, like, that's me, that's my voice. That's, you know, the music, whether or not, you know, specific songs to my idea, the whole atmosphere of it definitely is my idea. And it's definitely my, you know, the way I do things. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm exposing my version of, of sonic art form using dancers as a catalyst too, but to like, you know, that is my expression. And, and when, when people shit on that, yeah, it hurts. And, you know, it was very hard for me to kind of like take a step back and be like, who cares what that person, like, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, I think I kind of failed, uh, at, at that in a way. And, you know, I didn't need to let it get to me. I didn't need to let you know, that kind of anger kind of, you know, gestate, I didn't need it. It's, it's all so totally pointless. There's so many other things to focus on and to be, you know, to be into than just focusing on like that kind of anger. If that makes any sense. I know that's a little wishy-washy. No, that's, it's not wishy-washy at all. That's something with which I identify. And I think a lot of people do. It takes courage and it requires a real ego check. And, you know, I keep on going back to this thought that, you know, what you do is in fact like an interdisciplinary performance art. And there are so many barriers to prohibiting 
people from appreciating that. You know, you have the whole puritanical problem, which, you know, speaks for itself. You have these gender dynamics, which, you know, performer is, in this case, a woman, and you're, as you said, sort of the dude behind the curtain. And, like, that's challenging to the ego, um, both because of the gender dynamics and because you're not on stage and you were exactly once quite a stage performer. Right, right. Despite what you say, you still could be. <laughs> so what, you, what you're saying makes perfect sense. And um, it's complicated because, you know, you're a full person with feelings and hopes and dreams. And so I think that there's something poetic to what you're suggesting about this what you describe as this failure of yours. And I think there's something um, both humbling and beautiful in how and why you've managed to overcome that, or at least put yourself on the path towards overcoming that. Give me your success. I'm really proud of what I did at Sassy's. I mean, honestly, I helped make it one of the most, you know, famous strip clubs in Portland. And it definitely was the biggest money-making club in Portland for, for a while. And I do take pride in that. And it wasn't always easy. And, you know, I think just individually speaking, you know, I've made mistakes, you know, with, with people and how I communicated even with, with dancers, especially in the beginning. And once I, you know, learned how to let that go and how to like, you know, take in everybody's great ideas and work, you know, as like this big sort of, you know, this big synergy, this, you know, this kind of unified thing. Um, I learned how to be, how to get much better at my job. And that's, I'd like to consider myself really fucking good at being a strip club DJ. You know, we helped create an atmosphere, an environment that, you know, for a while was just off the charts crazy. And, and it was awesome. And, you know, it was everything you would imagine a success story to be um, just in a kind of in a fringe way. Obviously, you know, I don't know uh, what's going to happen in the next few months. I don't think any of us really do. You know, I mean, Portland is still on a, pretty big shutdown. And I think it's, you know, unfortunately, I think of like the 54 clubs or whatever that, that you said actually exist here. I don't know that a lot of them are going to be able to, to survive this. You know, that being said, I hope it does continue, but if it doesn't, and I don't know if it'll ever continue in the same capacity as it did, maybe we did in fact witness, you know, like the golden age certainly, and maybe the end of it too. Uh, maybe I was there to see it all. I don't know. You know, I think my, my, my greatest success is just, you know, is, is learning how to do that, is, is, is learning how to be a success and, you know, and, and how to take other people's ideas and their, and their greatness and how to work with it and how to, you know, how do we, how to use each other as catalysts to make something awesome that people really, truly freak out about. Even if it's just a stage show in a dive bar in Portland, Oregon, it's still, it was important and it meant a lot to all of us. And I'm, I'm very proud of that. You gave me bona fide goosebumps with that. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy for you. I'm happy for you. In fact, I will concede that that sentiment, that precise sentiment is what I was hoping I was going to hear <laughs> in speaking with you. That's what I wanted to hear. You gave, you, you gave, you gave me my money's worth, <laughs> but I can't let you go despite having gotten my money's worth without asking you to recommend a guest I should pursue. Uh, this could be like a specific person that you think would be really cool for me to have on the podcast or a profession that you wish you could learn more about. 
Johnny, what do you got? Uh, my old uh, guitar player, who uh, actually was kind of like our band leader, uh, John Guffey. I know he's done some a few podcasts before, and he can give you a really good background of what the Portland rock scene was when we kind of first met, met up with each other. And I think it's, it's, that's a great story in and of itself. You know, I mean, I would wish that I could talk about that too. Um, I've made jokes over the years that I wanted to put together a book, you know, like a coffee table book of old pictures and images of those, of those bands, of those venues, a lot of which don't exist anymore, but it was a great scene. And I think he's a great person to talk to um, as far as getting, giving you like a great insight on that. He actually uh, used to, I think he was the West Coast uh, director of the School of Rock. Um, he eventually left the School of Rock and started uh, his own uh, version of that called uh, the Hammersmith Institute. It's based in Vancouver, Washington, um, where he, he teaches kids how to rock and roll. And he's, he's fascinating. He's a really interesting guy. And, you know, he's got some great stories to tell, too, including stories about me that, you know, I'm at this point <laughs> in my life, I'm, I'm totally cool with him saying these stories because there's some seriously messed up things that you know we all kind of did but uh he's a good guy to talk to all right john guffey thank you so much for the recommendation and johnny spaith thank you so much for joining the podcast and for being energetic and open and introspective and thoughtful this was exactly what i was hoping when i invited you to be on i'm grateful that you accepted the invitation and i learned a lot from you and I can't express enough um, how, how, how grateful I am that you took the time and that you brought your full Johnny Spaith, DJ Johnny Shiitake game uh, to this conversation. It's been a real pleasure, man. Oh, thank you so much, Dan. This has been awesome, too. Um, can, I do, can I give a little plug for my, my Instagram account that has like <laughs> barely any followers? Do it, and I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Um, yeah, it's Johnny Shiitake, Johnny Shiitake Tattoo. Um, I've done about uh, 30 different procedures, so I'm, I'm starting to put some stuff under my belt. And it's a whole other game, too. I mean, this is it's I'm excited to be doing it. But man, it's I haven't I haven't had to try this hard to, like, make something happen. I don't think in my entire life. And, and I love it. And I'm focused <laughs> on it. You know, it's in my journey of becoming like the most stereotypical Portlandite. <laughs> You know, I mean, I went from like, like a, you know, gutter rocker to a strip club DJ to a tattoo artist that pretty much hits all the boxes of, you know, of, of why people wanted to move to Portland to begin with. So um, I'm doing it. I'm living the dream out here. Anyway, Dan, I do appreciate it. Uh, this was really fun. And, you know, I hope you get some good, some good material. Out of it. I hope it's somewhat cohesive. I don't, you know, I don't it know. It is. It's really cohesive. Your stories have beginnings. They have middles. And in several cases, they have these beautiful exclamation marks on the end you're like you know this about you you're you got the gift of gab and <laughs> you brought it to the this particular environment and people are gonna fucking flip about this episode everyone's gonna <laughs> love it and this includes you know our, our old buddies mutual and otherwise and um you know maybe some of your your friends in the industry i hope that i hope that you liked it i hope that you enjoyed the opportunity to talk about your work yeah and so uh, it's a really um, enriching experience for me. So, um, and, you, and you made that. So I really want to thank you for that. Oh, thank you, Dan. You, you make it very easy for, uh, you know, for me to want to talk. Johnny, happy and healthy. Please be well out there. Weather the storm. It's a fucked up time, but you're, you're, a, you're a strong motherfucker. And uh, please take care, take, take care of your people. Take care of yourself. <laughs> thank you, Dan. 
All right, friends and loved ones, there you have it. My best effort to keep up with Johnny Spaeth. Learned a lot. Hope you did too. So subscribe. It helps me if you subscribe to the show. Leave a comment. Leave a review. And pretty please, come on now, share studs with your people. Look forward to the next episode. Hope you do too.